Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today the the crux, the thrust, the direction of this episode is going to be to answer a question submitted by a listener, which I'll get to in a minute. But it reminded me of one of the great benefits of creating something like a podcast, or if you wrote a book, or like like the various instructional materials, videos, and books, and things like that that I've written and created and put out there into the world. One of, one of the downsides of that is that people see your work and then they judge you on your knowledge, your you know reasoning ability, your ability to communicate. So you are risking judgment whenever you put something out in public. You know, go back and listen to uh, the meandering talks that I've given on this podcast. And, you know, I've made peace with the fact that I'm giving you, in many cases, my opinion. And, I, you know, some people view that as um, an expert opinion. And I am reminded that one of the great benefits of this is when you do put information out to the world, you will get questions from people. And Charlie Schlafman from out in Denver has sent me a question which I'm going to address. It's not really a question. The more I think about it, it's not. He does ask a question or two, but let's come back to his question. I want to talk about this thing about what is an expert. Because in, I believe, in many areas of, in particular, music and bluegrass, I consider myself to be an expert about some of those things. And you may too, but on the other hand, you may also think, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about because you completely disagree or partially disagree with, you know, some viewpoint that I hold. And so I was thinking, you know, really what is an expert? Uh, You know, the first requirement for being an expert is to be brave enough or perhaps stupid enough to state your opinions on a subject and and subject it to potential ridicule or praise. And I have done that. I don't know if it was stupid or whether it was a good idea. I would say that if you enjoy what I've done and find it useful, then it was a good idea. But I'm sure there are folks out there who think, you know, I'm some sort of knucklehead who doesn't know anything about anything. But, you know, a man's entitled to his opinion, as in the famous words of Briscoe Darling. Anyway, so what, what is an expert exactly? And I think that an expert is a person who accumulates a certain amount of experience. I think that's a prerequisite. If you don't have experience in some subject area, you just cannot claim to be an expert on something you you know have very little experience with. And I've certainly qualified in this in having lots of experience learning, playing, performing, recording, 
bluegrass music and, and some other kinds of music too. So I have a measurable amount of experience. Then to become the expert, you not only have to have the experience, but you then must couple it with reasoning or thinking about those experiences. Because a lot of people have a lot of experiences and just don't, you know, for whatever reason, don't invest a lot of time in thinking about those experiences and trying to draw conclusions from them. And my personality type, whatever, you know, you psychologically analyze me. I tend to do that a lot. You know, if I have an experience, I then try to analyze it and reason out why things happened the way they happened. So if, in my opinion, to be an expert, you need experience coupled with analysis and reasoning and then formulating opinions and then projecting those opinions out for ridicule or for uh, thunderous standing ovations, you know, and everything in between. So that, that's what I'm doing here. And the reason I'm prefacing this is that my response to Charlie's question, which we're going to get to here in a minute, is based on my experience, my reasoning, and it results in what you would call my opinion or my two cents worth. And uh, you know what, let's, let's put it this way. You're entitled to your own opinions. I'm just putting in a little food for thought because perhaps Charlie or some of the people that he is debating these issues with may, don't, may not have the experience that I have in those areas and may hear some reasoning or opinion that they haven't perhaps thought of. Because, now I don't know about Charlie. I have a feeling he's been playing bluegrass a pretty good while. But I don't know that. Um, but he is organizing several jam sessions in the Denver, Colorado area. So usually somebody that's organizing jams probably has a pretty good bit of experience. And he may have, in fact, more experience than I do. I, I don't know. He didn't go into that. So he's formulated his opinions on this topic. And I'm going to just you know, basically give you my opinions. And it's something, this, this subject has been, uh, let's put it this way. I think that it is something which many of the listeners of this show have puzzled over or encountered problems in this area because it relates to jam sessions. And despite the fact that I wrote that 60 some odd page book about jam sessions, I don't think I really, really covered this aspect of jamming. And I'm going to right now because of Charlie's email and question. So let's begin by simply quoting Charlie. So, and by the way, I got Charlie's permission to um, mention him on the show here because I thought his question was so potentially interesting to anybody who's playing bluegrass, especially if you do any jamming. And frankly, I don't know any bluegrass musician of any level 
all the way from the you just bought an instrument to David Grisman, everybody jams at one time or another. So this is about jamming, and it's about how you present jams and should technology, and in particular amplification, be involved. So here is Charlie's email. Hi, Mr. Laird. I enjoy your podcast very much and thought you might be able to help me with a question that came up. I help run a couple of bluegrass jams here in the Denver, Colorado area. A difference of opinion has come up about the use of amplification. Then he proceeds on. We have found that having a single lead vocal mic and a small PA helps a medium to large jam in a couple of ways. It really helps keep the group together. The people in the edges of the group can't really hear the vocals. Also, customers at the jam venue can't hear the songs either. If a business owner gives us the space to use for a jam and maybe a free drink, maybe we should try to entertain their customers. So when he says maybe, that's kind of opening it up for a question. And he continues, finally, learning to use a mic is part of the learning of is part of learning to play music. Okay, so there he's essentially stated his case, and it's sort of his logic. So, you know, to recap what he said, he's saying, we have found, so he has experience in this, that having a single lead vocal mic and a small PA, and I assume by that he means we have one mic and we're plugging it into a PA and putting that out over some speakers. I don't hear him mentioning other mics. So we're assuming, I'm assuming, this is a one microphone to kind of boost the lead vocal. And then he gives his experience. It really helps to keep the group together. The people in the edges of the group can't hear the vocals, parentheses, unless we use the mic. And also, this, is, this turns the corner, the customers at the jam venue can't hear the songs either. And I would add, you know, when we don't use a microphone. And then making the case or question, you know, well, you know, because we're getting the space and perhaps some free drinks or something, should we be trying to, you know, project the jam through amplification to the customers? I'm going to get to each of those points here and just give you my quote, air quotes, expert opinion because <laughs> your mileage may vary as they love to say on the forums back to his email this is where i think why he's writing this to me perhaps to get me or someone maybe you to go yeah you're right you're right i'm on your side with this thing here's what he says several folks are against using a mic and pa at a jam they say singers need to learn to project their voices. Also, using a mic will inhibit players from listening and playing off each other. One person even said they wouldn't go to a jam where any electronics were being used. Do you have any thoughts? 
And then he put in parentheses, isn't it amazing what people will argue about? <laughs> yeah, it is amazing, but I don't really consider... See, argument to me does not mean a fight. I think of argument more like the way perhaps a lawyer would think of the word argument. Argument is stating your case for your viewpoint, your side of, of the story. You're making arguments. It doesn't mean you're fighting, you know, we're not. So I think you can argue your opinions all you want as long as you do it in a civil manner. Uh, that would be, you know, fighting or all the stuff we see on Twitter and Facebook and all this kind of stuff. I think what I'm saying is the word argument, I think that the, the uh, connotation has been distorted a little bit to imply fighting. So I say let's argue, but let's not fight. Okay. We will respectfully uh, offer up our opinion. So that's what I'm going to do here today. Let me just quickly read you my response to his email. And this will give you an idea of the kind of response you might get from me if you choose to email me with a question or a potential topic for a show. Because I'm always fishing for a good topic because I want the content of this podcast to be useful to you. I want it to be of interest to you. And so if I get a question, I think, well, you know, I have some experience about that. And I've got some ideas about that. And I've mentioned that in four other podcasts, but I didn't really go deep into it. So maybe, yeah. What I'm saying is if you write me an email similar to Charles, your email could be the topic, the subject for an upcoming show. And if you don't mind, if you do that, if you send me an email, all you have to do is go to bradleylaird.com. And at the top, you will see a little kind of a menu looking thing that says contact. Click contact and it'll tell you how to email me. And uh, just, you know, state your question. I'm happy to address them. And I don't even, I don't even mind being completely wrong about certain things because what I want you to do when I address a question from a listener is to consider it yourself and then weigh my argument and you be the jury and you decide because you don't have to agree with me. Okay, here's my response back to Charles. Hi, Charles. Would you mind if I dedicate an entire episode to this quandary? I have a lot of experiences and thoughts on this subject which I'm going to go into some of those shortly. In fact, at times, I have been severely annoyed by how little people understand about mics and amplification. There are so many factors. Number one, the size of the jam. How many pickers? Number two, the room, the atmosphere. Number three, the audience, their interest and activities. Number four, the hearing difficulties, medical and environmentally, of the participants. Five, the perspective difference from the audience versus the musicians. And by perspective, I mean what you hear. If you're sitting in a circle, you know, of jammers, you're not hearing the same thing as the bartender you know, who's standing behind the bar on the other side of the room. 
And I continued, I can definitely talk about this for 45 minutes and still not vent all of my views. Is it okay to read your question and name on the show, Brad? And he wrote back and said, yeah, sure thing. Uh, give it a shot. I look forward to hearing the episode. So let's, let's go through this uh, piece by piece. And uh, before I do, let me just state some of my experiences. I have personally attended more jam sessions than I can possibly count. Now, I will say that most of them have not been, there has not been any form of microphone or PA or amplification at all. I mean, we're talking picking on the porch, picking in the cabin, picking in the festival grounds, jamming, parking lot picking, impromptu jams, you name it, rarely has a PA been involved. But I've also hosted and organized jam sessions at venues, very similar to what Charlie is talking about. Used to do one at the Five Spot in Little Five Points in Atlanta. Um, went to one a lot. I wasn't, well, I mean, I was involved in it uh, at a place called EFY in College Park, Georgia. Did that one a bunch. I attended a lot of jams at the Red Light Cafe in Atlanta. A lot of jams at the Freight Room in Decatur, Georgia. I ran a jam session at the County Line Tavern in Sonoya, Georgia for a year or two. Uh, was involved with Involved more as a participant at um, quite a few jam sessions at SEBA meetings, at Southeastern Bluegrass Association meetings. Back in the day, I got into SEBA, I think in 84. Um, and just recently did this one at Pat's Place in Americas. Um, trying to think of there are others. There probably are. So you kind of lose track over time. Um, my experience with those jams has been that I'm sort of on the side that a PA and microphones does very little to help the situation. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go through that. Um, let's take it point by point. He, he began with, we found that using a single vocal mic and a small PA helped uh, for the various reasons he stated. And... You know, my question, I guess, his question might be, do I agree with that? And I, I would have to say, I don't know, because I haven't been there. I don't know. I would Honestly, I would have to be in the room and hear what's going on and experience it for myself, either as an audience member or a participant, before I had any opinion as to whether or not he's correct, as to whether it does work and whether it does help and you know, I think he's probably correct that, you know, people on the fringes of the jam session, and let's, I'm just sort of imagining maybe this is a jam session with, let's say, eight pickers, eight, eight or nine pickers, and only three or four of them are doing any singing, and then we got, you know, a banjo player and a couple of mandolins and three guitars and a bass player and, you know, maybe a dobro guy and you got beginners and intermediates and people have been playing a long time. I'm just sort of like imagining that that's a typical jam because that has been the typical jams that I've attended. Um, you know, scheduled jams. I'm not talking about pickup jams in a festival. Many times those are a little bit different. I'm assuming that's the case. And 
he's, he, he made the point that by using a vocal mic, it helps keep people together better because the people on the fringes can hear you know, the song, they can hear the verse and they hear the chorus and it's just easier to keep everybody together. And if, if that is true, Charles, I would say, great. I mean, if, if that's true, that is a vote in favor of a microphone. Because i give you the most gross example I can think of. I forget what year it was now. 2006, I think. The 286 banjo players descended upon Turner Field, where the Atlanta Braves play in Atlanta, did a tribute to Earl Scruggs, walked out on the field like during the seventh inning stretch, 280-something banjo players, and played Foggy Mountain Breakdown, attempting to set a Guinness World Record for the most banjo players to ever play Foggy Mountain Breakdown together. Um, we played it for five minutes, and we were spread all the way out down the first baseline, down the third baseline, a big cluster of people there at home plate, and it was the most chaotic sound you've ever heard because there are speakers all over this place. And, you know, they positioned some microphones at home plate for this core group to play into in the hopes that that amplified sound would go out through the stadium PA and then be heard by like some guy 90 feet away who's trying to play in time with, you know, to keep everybody in time. It was chaos, the echoes, the number of speakers. Sometimes you were hearing things come back at you about a second and a half later. It was very challenging. And the ultimate decision was made that the only way we're ever going to play this thing, luckily they thought of this in advance, and play in time is to do it visually. So we had a conductor standing on top of a ladder and everybody just watched the conductor. Rob Smith, I think, is the guy that conducted it, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I think he did do it. What Visually was the only way because it was impossible. It didn't work. Projecting the sound from a few banjo players playing into a microphone throughout the whole stadium did not keep us together. But, Charlie, if, if you setting up a mic and having, uh, you know, some of the sound be amplified if that helps keep your jam of eight or ten people more together and in time, you know, then do it. I, I have to say, I'm not there. I haven't experienced it, so I really can't say whether or not I fully agree. But I would say that it's possible. Um, well, then let's turn to the, the question. Like, do you owe the place entertainment? In other words, can you make a case for setting up a mic and a small PA and use your justification for being, well, the place is letting us play here and there, you know, there are all these customers here hanging around and they will hear better if we amplify even this minimalistic little one mic setup because we kind of owe it to the place, you know, to, should we, should the jam session be entertainment over a PA? And he's got asking that. He's not really stating that he believes that, but he's opening it up as a possibility. 
And my kind of gut feeling on this is no. I don't think you owe the venue, and, and I believe in being like helping the venues and being appreciative of the venue. Any venues stupid enough to open it up to a bunch of bluegrassers, you know, I, I believe in supporting the venue, but I don't think a jam session needs to be amplified for the customers. Now, I have been involved in jams that were on stage jams, and I view that as completely different. I mentioned the jam session that I ran for, I don't know, a year or two at the five spot. Might, it might have been about a year long. That was a kind of a two-stage jam session. The, the first portion of the jam was two hours of just people sitting around in chairs in the middle of the room just picking no PA. And then it shifted over to an onstage jam hosted by a band that I was playing in. And what we would do, or what I did, was during the jam session, I would sort of select a couple of ringers, a couple of, you know, people who were playing pretty good and maybe we hadn't played with them in a while, hadn't seen them, they dropped in, you know, perhaps a good fiddle player, a dobro player, banjo player. I would just kind of like take a look and listen to who's here. And then I would ask several of them, hey, when we move up on the stage, do you, would you mind, you want to stick around and pick a couple with us, sing a couple tunes, you know, hang out and play the set. And so I would kind of then organize this stage jam session. Then our band would come on and play a tune or two and then start bringing these people up one by one, adding to it or featuring somebody for a couple of songs. And we had full PA set up up there. You know, house, PA, speakers, sound man in the back. We were doing it just like a show, but it was our band with these guests. And a lot of times the beginner types who would have been there for the two-hour jam, they're getting their chance to do their thing, but they don't want to go up there. They, they know they're not ready for that. And you know, not good enough or not experienced enough, stage fright, you name it. Uh, but they would hang around and then watch the onstage jam. And it was a jam session, but it was more organized and it was treated the same way I would treat any bluegrass show that's a full-blown show. Microphones all over the place, a sound man trying to balance everything so that when so you can hear everything. And so the audience can hear everything. Because what we've done is cherry pick the jam for good musicians. And then the band that was the host band was kind of just the core. So you had a bass player and, you know, guitar player and, who, you know, that kind of thing. In that case, had we moved that jam up on stage with no PA, no sound man, no mics, I think it would have fallen flat on its face. I don't think it would have been very effective. We might as well have just stayed, you know, sitting around in a circle and just kept picking. Once you move it up on a stage and the lights come on, that's different. So that sort of thing becomes entertainment. But sitting around in a circle and playing, you know, and it's totally inclusive where, you know, even the person that's been playing 10 minutes 
you know, is encouraged to jump in there and play and try and play along and all that kind of stuff. I don't really call that entertainment. However, there is an aspect of a jam session that is entertaining to people. You know, if you've ever gone into like an Irish pub and there's a jam session going on, it's entertaining. It's not direct focused entertainment directed to you through a PA system where, you know, there are people on stage speaking to you and singing to you and playing to you. That's not happening. You're just observing. There's a gang of people over there and they're jamming. That is entertainment. So I think just the fact that you are having a jam session, even if it's one of these, we're all in a circle and we're just playing whatever we feel like and we're not really interacting with the audience, you are putting out that jam session atmosphere experience that is being absorbed by the audience, by some of the audience. And when, when you do that, that's entertainment. I mean, if, if you walked in a bar and there are 10 guys sitting in a corner, guys and gals, playing bluegrass music, ignoring the crowd, that's a different room than if you walk in a place and there is no jam session going on in the corner. There's nothing going on. They're just playing some music over the, over the PA, you know, like XM radio or something. That's a different thing. People are getting a live music experience, and that watching these people uh, is a form of entertainment. It's not, you know, that direct show-type entertainment. So I think my suggestion to Charles is that you are already providing a form of entertainment simply by having a live jam session happening in the room. And then if you really want to, you know, turn it into a show, I would suggest maybe that thing I was doing where you got a little core host band who agree will be there every time and that you have a sort of divided thing where early we all just jam and then later we jam and bring up, you know, some of the people. And, you know, you're not going to get, you're mostly going to get people say, nah, that's all right. Nah, nah, nah. But you're also going to have people that go, yeah, I'd shoot, yeah, I'd love to do it. <laughs> and they would actually rather be up there playing over the PA than sitting around just jamming in, in the circle. So some people are really into it and some people are not. And you just want to find the people that want to do it. And, and you know, you in that case, you can make a case for a PA because once it moves on stage and the lights come on, you're a band, you know. You may actually be winging it, but the audience hopefully won't know that. And, you know, it's uh, that in that case, I'd make the case for a PA. But as far as amplifying the band of the jam circle, just to make it louder for the benefit of the customers, I, I wouldn't use that rationale. And he, here's why. The, not everyone who's there, who's present as an audience member or a customer, cares anything at all about what you're doing. Some do, some don't. Probably most don't. And those that do, you will find they will position themselves closer. They'll move in a little closer. They'll sit at a table near the jam. They'll watch you more. They may talk to you, ask you questions. They're interested and they can physically position themselves to where they can hear better. You know, 
if, if I went in a place and there was a bluegrass jam session going on, I'm not going to sit way in the back corner. I'm going to sit right up there. I'm going to be watching them mandolin players and banjo players. I'm going to be talking to them. I'm going to be right up there on the edges of the circle. So it's sort of self-regulating. The people that just came in there after work want to drink a couple of beers and shoot the breeze about what happened at the office. They may think it's cool. Hey, look at that. There's these guys over there playing these banjos. Isn't that cool? Hey, we ought to ask them to do Freebird or whatever. But they're not really interested that when you amplify it, you're kind of forcing it on them, you know? And I talked about this in, in an episode. I can't recall which one, one of the ones about playing over PA systems, where I said there's a phenomenon where your master volume control on your PA is also a volume control for the noise level of the audience. And in that podcast, I said that when you're playing in a quiet listening room, a venue, a theater, where people are expected to be quiet and listen, and the only noise they make is occasional applause or cheering or things like that at the end of a hot solo or at the end of a song, and then they quiet right back down. If you start talking over the mic, they get all quiet and they listen to what you're doing. In a listening type audience, which you're not going to have at your typical jam session, you can very easily project the sound of a full bluegrass band with many times with no microphone and no PA in the right kind of room or with a single mic or a pair of mics. You really can do it. But if you got 80% of the people in the room talking and eating and drinking and carrying on, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. Because if you went into a venue, such as a bar or restaurant or something, where you're having your, your jam session, and you go in there, and the jam is not going on, just it's full of customers and take your decibel meter in there and sit down and while you're sipping your beer, dial, turn that decibel meter on and see what is the noise level. What is the average decibel level in this room with full of customers having a good time? You probably find it's probably, I'm going to take a guess at about 75 decibels, 70, 75, maybe 80 possibly. On a Friday night, probably more like 90. <laughs> um, and the more they drink, the louder they get. There is an ambient noise level of customers in a facility. So you come in. Let's say there's three of you sitting in the corner and you're going to play music. For somebody sitting out there in the middle of that room, you've got to play louder than the din of the room. So let's just say that the room has a base noise level of 70 decibels. For that person out there to hear you over that, you have to project sound louder than that. But here's, here's the problem. And, and you could do that. With a PA, you can easily do that. And that's what you're doing when you put one mic in front of one person. You're projecting a sound that is maybe... I don't know, 85 decibels. And those people out there can hear that. But that's all they can hear is that one thing, whatever is going in that mic. But what happens is 
when you turn it up, they turn it up. I've witnessed this so many times. I witnessed it. Let's see. What is today? Today is Wednesday. Last night, I witnessed it at a jam session. The louder we got, the louder they got. Because they're not going to stop talking and interacting just because you got a little louder. So if you turn up your PA a little bit or just play louder, they'll just talk louder. It doesn't help anything. It actually makes everything worse. Because I've noticed so many times that at the end of a song, suddenly the band screeches to a halt. And just listen and you'll hear the audience just taper off and get a little quieter. And you're like, wow, it's not so noisy in here after all. Then you start playing again. You're tearing down on Foggy Mountain Breakdown and the din of the audience just goes back up again. You ever look across the room and see somebody just telling this joke and they're being real loud and boisterous and you're thinking, God, man, why can't that guy shut up? Does he really have to yell? The guy is right across the table from him. But you know, from his perspective, he does have to yell. They can't hear what's going on because you're making all that racket over there with your stupid bluegrass jam. Do you follow me? So I think it's good to sort of decide, well, are you jamming as entertainment or are you jamming for your own personal enjoyment of the experience of hearing all these bluegrass sounds? And just be cautious that you start amplifying, even with one microphone, you are amplifying the room sound too. And so there's this additive effect. And I think in the podcast that I mentioned this, I said, why don't you go to a place, set up a microphone, and just record. Just record a little bit of the sound. Use the same mic that you use, you know, the one mic that you're proposing to put in front of your group of pickers and maybe move it around where people can sing into it or your guitar player can play his break into it. Just set that microphone there and record. And then listen to it. That microphone is picking up all sorts of stuff. Dishes rattling in the back, air conditioners going, ice machines grinding, and just, you'd be amazed at what is actually going into that microphone. Plus, your lead singer is singing into that microphone. But there's a lot of other stuff in there, too. Then you're amplifying that. Well, you're just out of your speakers, pointed at the house, is a copy of their own noise and you're boosting it up you know it's like oh man now it just got louder you turn on that mic and turn it up now the noise is even louder so they have to talk louder and you got to turn it up more and they get louder and it just goes on it's this cycle this death spiral of sound now this is not necessarily the case if you can amplify everything if you can, because it's impossible to get a good balance with a single microphone, unless you're in one of those perfect listening rooms where the audience is dead quiet, where the only thing you have to get over to be heard is the faint sound of the air conditioners running or a little humming of the lights or something. Very quiet room. You can easily do this. That one mic will pick up the whole band and it'll be pretty balanced and people can balance themselves based upon how far away from the mic they position themselves and how loudly they play and in what direction they play. 
But you try that in a room that's already noisy, and trust me, that microphone is picking up the room too. You know, that, the sound of an audience is bouncing all over the room. You will not be able to find a place in that room that you can make that mic live that it won't hear the sounds of the room. It will hear it, and then you amplify it, and you just turn them up. So sometimes, I'm just saying, sometimes you can make it worse by even attempting any kind of amplification. All right, so that, I mean, that's to me a very important principle. Just remember that the microphone doesn't know what you're trying to amplify. However, I, I will admit that sometimes from the player or jammer's perspective, they feel like it's working. Because, you know, they're having trouble hearing. Your guitar player's taking a break. He's got a banjo player facing him and another guitar just flamming away because they're all trying to hear themselves over the din of the crowd. And this guy is taking his solo on some tune on the guitar and he can't hear it. He's frustrated. And somebody says, hey, we'll just shove this microphone in front of him. And you do that. And he hears it coming out in the room through the PA, and he can hear a little better, and he's happier. So you can make an individual happier by stuffing a microphone in front of them and turning it up a little bit. But you may actually, if you were across the room sitting there listening to this, you might think, that sounds bizarre. You know, a minute ago I was hearing a crowd and a bluegrass band playing, but now I'm just hearing this guy belting out this song or just picking real loud on his guitar, but it doesn't sound loud to him because he's behind the speakers. Do you get what I'm saying? But out there in the room, it's really unbalanced. Because if you stick a microphone in front of one thing, that is going to presumably be louder than the other things which you didn't stick a microphone in front of. Just saying it's dangerous territory. I probably lean on the side of, I don't want to really go to a jam session where, where you have a microphone. Unless it's sort of like a little stage show and we're, we're actually pretending to do an actual show. I'm kind of on that person's side maybe here. That sometimes it helps, but a lot of times it doesn't help. Last night, I'll just tell you how, how it went last night at Pat's place, the jam session. And it, I, in, no mean, no, in no way am I criticizing the way they do what they do. It's their thing, they can do what they want to. But here's what we had last night. Two guitar players, one of whom flat picks lead. Actually, let me use the week before because this, this week it actually went pretty well. Let me back up to the week before. Had me on upright bass, no amplification on that. Had a mandolin player, no mic, no amplification. A guitar player, no mic, no amplification. A banjo player, no mic, no amplification. A guitar player, plugged into the PA with a wire and a microphone to sing into. Another guitar player, no mic, no amplification. And the guy who was singing into the mic and playing his lead guitar solos into the microphone was, I think, just based upon his, his seeming attitude, thinking sounded pretty good. You know, he was pretty happy. He could hear himself pick. You know, I was playing the 
uh, I was playing the bass that night. I could hear the bass. Not loud, not like when I plugged into my amp, but I could hear it. I could hear what I was doing. I wasn't struggling. I could hear the bass. Well, at one point, I took a little break. Going to walk back to the restroom. I'll be back in a minute. Well, I have to pass through this door. It's actually a, you know, a glass door that goes back into the pool room and the bathrooms are back there. So I go through there, and while I'm gone, one of the guitar players took the bass and played bass, and they did a song while I left. And that door closed, and when I was standing back there in the pool room, I could hear the banjo, the bass, the mandolin very clearly. But I could also hear this overly loud guitar sound because it was just penetrating through, even through in a different room with the door closed. And that bass, man, I could hear that bass. Then when I went in the bathroom and closed the door in there, all I could hear in there was the bass and that mandolin chop. Boom, chop, boom, chop, boom. And I'm like, that is amazing. Those two instruments are not being amplified. And I hear them all the way in a different room with two doors between me and them. You would be amazed what you can learn by taking a break from picking and walking around, maybe sit there at the bar with your eyes closed and just listen to it and try to listen to everything. Don't just try to listen to what the banjo player is playing. What, what, what lick did he just do? Try to listen to like, what all sounds am I hearing? Speaking of sounds I'm hearing, I hear a cat outside the window squalling. I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, maybe there's about to be a cat fight out here. You can learn a lot by doing that. Take a break from the jam. Walk around. See what you, you know, try to experience it from the audience's perspective. And when it comes to the microphones, you know, I think like the one mic thing, I think as I said, I think it's a dangerous route to go down because you can end up with a really unbalanced sound. But I also know it's a major flipping hassle to think about, well, I'm going to set up, you know, eight mics and, you know, all that kind of stuff too for a jam session. I don't know. I sort of just lean towards, eh, just skip the PA, you know. And, oh, to the point about, well, you know, people need to learn to use a microphone. I just don't think that's really going to do it because people are just going to sit around in the circle. They're going to do what they were doing with or without the mic. You know, putting the mic in front of somebody may make a certain people happy because suddenly now I can hear or I can hear myself or I can, I can hear the lead vocal or whatever, but that's all they're going to be hearing. And I question how much you could really learn about using a mic when people are pretty much parked in chairs and they're not really... The mic's there, but they're not really using it. Not like you would use it on stage where you're, you're moving around it and you're positioning yourself in different ways around the microphone. That is learning to use the mic. Now, maybe if it's a standing jam where people are shuffling around, maybe, maybe that would work. You know, if you did have, you know, a, a microphone, a central microphone, and everyone was standing and those people who were playing you know, actively at that moment, a trio, then all three singers would gather around the mic, guitar, you know, you're taking a break and you move in a little closer. If you're doing that sort of thing, 
it might work better than if people are parked in chairs. I just think if, if people are parked in chairs, I don't know that they'll really learn anything about how microphones truly function, you know, and how, how, you, how you use them. So I don't know if that's a good argument in favor. Um, you might think, well, what if we add a couple of mics? Or what if we plug in the bass? And you start adding all these what ifs, and I think you can, you know, you might solve, you might solve things. I think one of the problems you have at, at a lot of jam sessions is people just simply playing too hard and too loud. And sometimes it's egged on by a couple of, you might say, offenders. Once in a while, you just have, I don't know, maybe a guitar player or a banjo player or somebody is just beating the livid snot out of their instrument. And if you could just get them to tone it down a little bit, maybe everybody else could just tone it down a little bit. And maybe the audience will just naturally relax and maybe not be quite so loud and suddenly everybody's having a good time. So maybe, maybe that's it. I mean, that is a potential solution. I would say you have to be very careful because you could make somebody angry, saying, hey, dude, you are playing way too loud. I, you know, it depends on how you say it. I've had times when I'm sitting there playing and I got a guitar player and the face of that guitar is arm's length from me, just blasting me. I don't like that. I have I've met a guy. I, I, I got a friend of mine named Bob Putnam. He, I interviewed him on the show. One time we're at, at a jam, and he's a powerful picker. And I love powerful picker, but I, I just turned to Bob. And I said, hey, could you just turn to your right just, just a little bit? Just point that thing away from me. And as soon as he did that, Bam, I was happy. Suddenly, I wasn't getting an HD 28 blasting me in the side of the head. And all he had to do was turn 15 degrees, solve my problem. So sometimes, you know, if you're getting complaints from individual participants, maybe just suggest that maybe they reorganize themselves and reposition themselves a little bit differently. You know, I've always liked to sit next to a banjo player rather than across from a banjo player. You know, unless, of course, I was the banjo player. Because, you know, I've, I've said before, probably on the podcast, maybe in one of the books, if you can see the head of the banjo, it's going to be louder than if you cannot see the head. You know, if the, if the sounds of the banjo are directed straight at your face, you're going to get them louder than if they're directed away from you or, you know, if you're looking over the banjo and you see that circle of the white head and it's just a sliver of an oval because it's almost pointed 90 degrees to you, you're not going to hear that thing as loud as if he turns and faces you. And that's true for mandolins, guitars, and all kinds of things. I think probably the bass is probably the exception to that because due to the nature of bass frequencies, they tend to radiate in all directions off of that instrument. They are a little stronger from the front, I will give you that. But they come off mighty strong off the back too. And the sides, and it's just like this envelope of sound around a bass. They're um, not as directional as high frequency, so things such as mandolins and banjos and even guitars have huge 
amounts of high-frequency energy, even though they're kind of a mid-range instrument, they project a lot of high-frequency harmonic sound and therefore are highly directional, especially the high frequencies. So if a guitar player is facing you, you're going to hear more high-frequency content than if he turns 90 degrees to you or if he, he turns his back to you. You'll still hear the guitar, but it's not going to have the same tonal quality. So, you know, a lot of times people can make themselves happier by being a little flexible in where they position themselves instead of having this thing, well, this is my chair. I always sit right here because I can set my beer up there and, you know, this is my spot. And I, you know, we sound terrible and it's always too loud and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe get up and move, you know, get up and move. I've had uh, cases where I had, you know, overly aggressive banjo player in, in the group or maybe too loud of a guitar player where I've actually used the bass player as a shield where I would, you know, find where the bass player is standing and then get to his right. And I could have this little pocket I could play my mandolin in. And I swear, I think I even would hear reflections of my mandolin coming off the back of the bass. You know, I'm just using the bass as a shield and a reflector. And I would be happier, you know. So you got to weigh, you know, what are the opinions and sensations and experiences of the players versus the audience. And I'm just saying, I don't think I'd worry about the audience. I think you should engage the audience especially people who come up close and are paying attention. This is your invitation. You can invite them to become part of the whole bluegrass thing if you're not, if you don't snub them and, you know, poo-poo all their goofy requests and things like that. Do their requests, you know? They want to hear Man of Constant Sorrow, lay it on them, you know? And then talk to them, you know, during breaks. That's another thing I do suggest that you take breaks, even in a jam session, a lot of jams don't take breaks. And I think even breaks for jam sessions are a good idea. It kind of gives the audience a chance to kind of deflate a little bit and relax just a little. If everybody takes a 10-minute break, you just listen how much quieter it is as soon as you start back up. And then, it, of course, it builds back up again. Anyway, you got to look at this from so many different angles that Charlie, I doubt I answered any of your questions and I think I came down on both sides of the issue as usual but hopefully I mentioned a few things here that you know perhaps you haven't thought about or, or some of the people on the other side of the argument haven't thought about I would say that the person who said I would never attend any jam where there's any kind of electronic apparatus or whatever you know I'll bet you anything that person drove to the jam in a car with electronic ignition using their GPS and while, you know, checking their Facebook on on electronic device. So I don't think they're anti-electronic. I think they just have a fear that if you do this, uh, it may make their personal experience worse because maybe they've been in situations where you know, you had this one guy who insisted on bringing a guitar amp and plugging his amp into it, and he just played too loud. And nobody ever had the, you know, knew how to approach him and say, dude, that is way too loud. You know, they just didn't know how to do it, and they put up with it. And, you know, passive aggressiveness and that kind of thing. Maybe that's really all it is. Maybe the person has had a, some bad experiences. Or maybe they're just, you know, kind of a dyed-in-the-wool traditionalist, and they say, well, you know what? 
Bill Monroe didn't, you know, that kind of thing. Or back in the log cabin days, they didn't have to do that. And they make a good point in some ways there. I think you could probably do without the mic. And if, if you're unsure, don't actually amplify it. Put the microphone there and just hook up a tape recorder and just tape it. And when you hear that guy singing into that microphone from two inches away with your jammers all spread out over a 10 or 12 foot circle, then listen to that tape. That tape is exactly what you're proposing to amplify to the room. So listen to the tape and you say, do I really want to play that over the house PA? And you may come away going, no, you know, that's not balanced at all. And you might go, it's more balanced if we just don't use the mic at all. So who knows? That is my opinion. Uh, I am going to uh, do an episode. We were, I got talking about the, you know, the relative loudness of things, the loudness of the crowd, the loudness of the instruments. And, you know, the function of the PA is to essentially increase the overall loudness of the performers in relation to the ambient noise level and all this kind of stuff. And it brings up a word that I'm not going to discuss today, but I think it'll be my next topic because it's such a, an important aspect of music and musical performing, and that is dynamics. And I just want to, all I want to say about dynamics is it is at the heart of this whole issue. What is the dynamic range and how do you control it? So coming back with that one, that, that's going to be a good episode. So watch for that next week. And in the meantime, if you're bored, go over to bradleylaird.com. And if you're bored and you got some money, consider purchasing some of my instructional materials. And if you can't do that or don't want to, just, uh, you know, scope out the free stuff. I don't mind that. And by the way, just a reminder, if you download that jam session, oh wait, the 10 Jamandments Discussed ebook, all about jam sessions, in the back, last page, is a 25% discount coupon code that you can take 25% off anything that I pedal. So you can save a little money if you do that. So when I see somebody download one of those, I always think, hmm, wonder if they're about to buy something. And as always, thanks to the patrons and thanks to any of you who spread the word about the show. And remember, I have an email. Use it. If you got a question or just a comment, you want to say, dude, what you said on that last episode, hey, you're completely wrong. Tell me. I'll put your side of it out there too. Because I'm, I don't claim to know everything. I just claim to know a lot about bluegrass. Y'all take care. I'll talk to you next week.